Welcome to the Shift Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. On the Shift podcast facilitated by Student Affairs, you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at Queen's, how these experiences are shaped by identity, their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate, and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting culture shift. Today, we'll be hearing from Chad and Rohan. I always sort of knew where that I didn't really fit in too well with uh, cis-het normative society. The way she brings intersectionality into the class has just been so amazing to experience because I feel like I can actually share my personal experiences and stories in the class and that's been a game changer. My struggles at Queen's were not initially not just as a queer person but also as an international student. Just the basic struggles of finding housing, understanding, and just adjusting myself like culturally and socially. Please note that this episode of the Shift podcast will feature Queen students' experiences and perceptions of campus safety, incidents of harassment, homophobia, and transphobia. These are difficult topics. If you feel overwhelmed at any point while listening to this podcast or reflecting on it later, pay attention to your needs. There are resources to support you. Visit the Queen Student Wellness website for more information. Hi everyone, my name is Chad. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, they, them. I'm in my third year of the Commerce program and I'm originally from Surrey, British Columbia. Very excited to be here today to talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion. I'll pass it off to Rohan. Hi, thank you, Chad. My name is Rohan. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. And I'm an international grad student doing a master's in computing. And I'm originally from Bangladesh. I just moved to Canada here in the fall of 2021. And currently I'm researching things including AI ethics and fairness and working towards making technology more safer and more inclusive to queer folk. And yeah, thank you very much. I'm excited to share my story with you all. All right, well, let's get started. I think this is always a really interesting topic for me. I think equity, diversity, inclusion is something I've been very involved in, um, in my role as co-chair for Q+. Um, Rohan, I think let's start off by talking about um, our decision to actually come to Queens. But for me, uh, I grew up in Surrey, so a pretty small suburban town. Um, I also really wanted to escape from that city as well. And so I think the natural choice was to come to Ontario, um, take the take a three-hour train to Kingston and come study here um, at Queen's. And so part of that decision was because of the program's reputation, but also I wanted to explore a new environment as well. And so those are two of my major factors when choosing university. That's awesome. I also sort of came to Queen's in a sort of was motivated by a desire to kind of get out of from where I was. Um, I guess I should probably just start with why I came to Canada first. And um, part of the reason was there were a lot better research opportunities here and I kind of wanted to pursue research. And I just happened to find a really good fit in my supervisor doing the kind of research into uh, AI-based ethics and fairness that I was really interested in. And that's particularly how I ended up diverting to Queens. but I was also really motivated to kind of get out of home because uh, Bangladesh is where I'm from. It's quite a conservative Muslim country and it can be a very hostile for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I was closeted pretty much all of my life and I wanted to sort of come to a place where I could be a little bit more free and express myself. So yeah, that's why I'm in Canada and that's why I'm at Queens. So. I guess on that note, Chad, do you want to talk a little bit about our personal journeys into how we sort of discovered ourselves? Yeah, for sure. I think my coming out journey 
um, happened mainly at Queens, actually. I think Queens has really helped me with that, and especially the people that I've kind of surrounded myself with. I recall my experience in first year when I became friends with someone um, who was also a part of the queer community, and they came out to me first, so I felt very safe at that moment, and so eventually I also came out to them, and that was kind of the first time that I started um, accepting my identity. It was in first year, um, and after first year, I really wanted to get involved as well in the queer space because I was still very much, um, I would still say I was in the closet at that time, even though I came out to some people. It, it felt like I had some internalized homophobia for sure. So I wanted to get involved in the queer space and I joined Q Plus as Logistics and Socials Coordinator. For those who don't know, Q Plus is the Professional Development Committee under the Commerce Society. And our mission is to empower queer folks to be able to pursue the careers that they want. And our mission has mainly predominantly been targeted at business students, but we're really hoping to expand that um, outside as well very soon. So I plan a lot of socials there. Um, I really got to meet a variety of different people who identified um, all across you know, the queer community. And I think that was just a great opportunity for me to become more confident in my identity and ultimately leading the club has really helped me do that because I've become someone who is the face of the club and ultimately um, really just pushing myself out of my comfort zone to gain that confidence. And that's been re really reassuring to me. I kind of can't imagine like the challenges you'd have to face to lead a queer organization and just really put yourself out there. It's, a, it's an entirely different thing. Um, I guess I'll, I'll get into a little bit of my story as well. I came out, I guess, initially just to, I started coming out to myself, really. Uh, yeah, I came out around like 2020, but even before then, it was a case of something where I always sort of knew where that I didn't really fit in too well with uh, cis-het normative society. I grew up in a very, very male socialized upbringing, and I am as a result, really had a lot of internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia from a very young age. And a lot of that got sort of, you know, really directed as self-hatred. And uh, over my teenage years, I was really, like, I felt very anxious. I did not feel like I really fit in too well. And I, and I didn't really have any access to, like, queer friends or anybody who could really sort of in a way, sort of tell me what was up, you know? And I, it wasn't until I did my undergrad and I became friends with somebody who was openly bisexual. And then I was like, huh, well, that's, uh, that's a something. And then once I, once I was comfortable with that, I was like, uh, it started to make sense that I could question my own bisexuality a little bit and kind of realize that, you know what? Maybe I am not a cis-head man. And sort of like just my journey since then of like discovery and learning, you know, and the pandemic in a way gave me the chance to sort of like just sit down and reflect and learn about things initially from a Western point of view. Um, and then eventually I learned more about like how, how much, you know, gender nonconformity is rooted in the South Asian culture and once I learned the language of non-binary, it just felt right. You know, it just felt like it fit. And initially I came out to my then girlfriend, now spouse, um, who has been incredibly supportive, but I couldn't come out to too many people. I came out to some close friends and some, I was met with some very harsh words. And then I realized, learned pretty quickly that, you know, you can't trust everybody once you're, once you're queer. So um, that's sort of how I came up. And I guess that leads to how my journey has been since uh, coming to Queens. Chad, you already touched on this a little bit, but do you want to go into a bit more detail about how Queens has particularly treated you? Yeah, for sure. I think um, when I reflect on my past experience and also my current experience at Queens, I think it has very much um, been a really important factor and how I view myself. So I kind of touched on um, how, you know, my first friend um, 
at Queens, who I came out to and also came out to me, really helped me with my identity. Um, and that was like that first initial step um, that I took. In terms of, you know, how my identity has kind of played into a role in my experience here, I would say that it's played a humongous role, I think. So being someone who's queer and also Asian, I've kind of a- adopted that sort of mindset whenever I approach like a problem or of some sort, I kind of try to think in, with an intersexual mindset um, and I try to think about the perspectives, perspectives of others as well. And that's especially, I think, prominent in the work that I've done with Q+. So for example, with our mentorship program and with our events, making that as accessible as possible, uh, making that also very much um, intersectional, so including people of all different backgrounds, not just cis white queer folks, but also people who identify as non-binary, as gender queer, and more. And so that has been how my identity has shaped my experience here at Queens. I'd love to hear about your experience as well, because I think um, there's definitely a lot of common ground that queer folks experience, but also a lot of differences as well. Yeah, a very interesting thing you brought up, like uh, intersectionality and just being not only a queer person, but also a person of color and how that sort of changes like your experience. Like I can definitely relate, um, like my struggles at Queens were not initially, not just as a queer person, but also as an international student. Like it, you know, initially it was hard uh, when I first got here, Um, you know, just, just the basic struggles of finding housing, understanding, uh many ways Canada work and just adjusting myself like culturally and socially like that was a bit of a hurdle and trying to navigate that while also kind of trying to explore myself as a queer person as a non-binary person it was initially it was a very quite challenging and I'm and I've had a mix of like both positive and negative experiences um I think now I can kind of reflect on it and say there's definitely been more positive than negative. I've definitely had some really good experiences with very good people, but um, it also doesn't change the fact that I also did have to struggle quite a bit. Um, in general, just coming here, um, I, I'm personally in a very cishet dominated department. I'm one of the only people who really use they, them pronouns. And it's, it's a big hurdle for a lot of people. And one particular thing, I guess, is that grad program, the, the makeup is very different from, I suppose, you know, an undergrad program, um, especially I think in the computing department, it's, it's very diverse and there's people from lots of different backgrounds and and this is not meant to really uh, throw shade at anyone, but you know, when you have people from lots of different places coming about, you have to always remember that the advances in how much I think like uh, West, like here in Canada, people have like learned over the last five years regarding uh, things like, you know, non-binary gender, for example, like not, not the whole world, like the whole world has not sort of done the same in many, in some of these aspects. And therefore, when you're dealing with people from so many different backgrounds, you always have to keep this in mind that not everybody is malicious. It's just that some people are uninformed and um, you always have to give them that sort of uh, leeway. And I feel like that creates a unique uh, challenge in in uh, being uh, an international grad student here. So I've definitely had a couple of very difficult people either to directly mediating with them or through some of my friends really got uh, like at least uh, I'm not surprised you know whenever I hear something that's uh, slightly problematic but I know that once my sort of cis had friends became allies uh then they started getting really surprised at like the things that their friends are saying and then they're coming back to me like so i know this person said this and i'm like yes that's what most people say about us definitely there has been difficulties um but i'm glad that i'm around like enough enough supportive people who make my identity feel like you know who make myself i sort of sort of feel loved and who really support me and don't expect me to explain myself and having that support circle really helps I think adjust I don't know how you how you feel about that yeah I definitely that sounds like it's a very difficult time for sure especially because you're not you know you weren't born in Canada you didn't grow up here so you also had kind of like a culture shock 
um, mm -hmm. having to find housing, having to find a sense of community here in a yeah. whole new country, that's yeah. honestly like insane. And as a domestic student, that's something that I can't relate with, but I can definitely empathize um, incredibly. There are a lot of international students here in commerce and a lot of them don't feel as included sometimes because mm -hmm. they might have an accent or they can't land that uh, internship interview as opposed to like a, a domestic candidate can because they're you know from not from Canada they're in, um, from a, a country outside but I'm really glad to hear that you've had a lot of support here as well mm -hmm. and I think that kind of moves on to our next topic which is our own support network here at Queen's for me it's definitely my friends um, and also my um, a queer club that I've been able to connect with a lot of people with. Um, for example, um, beyond just students, I think, especially with some of the Smith administration, it's been really great to connect with them. I think in particular, um, Nancy Salmon. Nancy is the uh, one of the um, administration members of the Career Advancement Center, and she is based out of the Toronto office, I believe. I've never actually met Nancy in person, but we connected virtually you know, throughout the pandemic, and that's been super awesome. But she supports um, the Career Center and also firms and creating relationships with um, student clubs. And so everything related to career, she's part of that department at Smith. She's always reaching out to us, like ask, making sure that we're doing okay, asking how she can help amplify our message and mission. And that's something that's really like stood out to me. And I think that's something that, you know, Queens as a school should implement more of making sure that student engagement and student equity clubs are well supported is super important as well. I'd love to hear about you know some of your experiences as well when it comes to feeling supported yeah. here at Queens and um, your support network. Yeah, that's, it's, it's amazing really having uh, somebody like to really provide that support, you know, like uh, somebody from an administrative level. Like I personally, I feel like for me, um, throughout my engagements with Yellow House, like people like Kel Martin, uh, Elliot Chappelle, who are just there to like really provide uh, resources for, um, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, inclusive purposes. Like they're just so amazing. Like at pretty much everything I've reached out to them for. Like there's there's definitely been some incredibly supportive people here at Queens. Um, uh, like I cannot say enough nice things about them, and. Uh, a lot like you, I would say my queer friends uh, here are absolutely amazing. Like people who are like, you know, not, I mean, I'm not just talking about like, you know, uh, white queer people, but also like pe the different people of color. Um, they're all so incredibly incredible and welcoming. And it's, I don't know how you feel about this particular thing, but I always feel like whenever I meet somebody else who is also queer and a person of color uh, and like, it's like we just instantly get each other on like on first meeting and like you know yep. there's like an instant connection like we just understand yeah and i think that's why initiatives like the yellow house are so important um so what kind of events have you been to the yellow house yeah so uh the yellow house is equity diversity inclus inclus inclusivity initiative here at queens and they they do a lot of work particularly for queer people and uh, queer people of color, and it's I. Um, one example would be that they're doing uh, a solidarity swim, which is uh, open only to people who are under the trans umbrella and their close uh, seconds, and it's just incredible. Like I haven't been to the first one, but like I've just heard so many incredible things about it that people are normally, you know. People under the trans umbrella, we kind of feel really excluded from uh, spaces such as such as like swimming, like and it's um, normally it's a really experience of anxiety, and just to break that down and be like and create a space exclusively for trans people there, it was absolutely like an incredible thing, and uh, I've heard somebody say like I've never seen so many happy trans people in one place. <laughs> And that's, that's like awesome. one, yeah, it's one incredible initiative, uh, Yellow House. There is the, there was, there's the Sunday Supper series that they do. Uh, it's an incredible uh, education series where like everybody is welcome and people can come and learn about issues facing queer people here at Queens. And it's just incredible. And that kind of ties into like my next point 
or something that I hope to discuss, which is kind of the personal and also systemic issues at Queens here when it comes to EDII. I think, you know, when it comes to um, paid efforts and also uh, student time, students aren't always compensated when it comes to equity work, even though you're pretty much doing what the administration should kind of be doing in fostering community and inclusivity. inclusivity. Um, I think it's always very interesting when Queens highlights, you know, the queer clubs here at Queens, the queer clubs, you know, during June or also during admission season, but then afterwards it kind of dwindles down um, and the support uh, isn't really there, especially um, financially. And I think something to kind of abide by is, um, you know, you should put your money where you talk, right? Or, mm, or, or on, on what you say. And so I think that's one area that Queens could definitely improve in. Um, and it's something that I hope to advocate for next year, um, which is paid positions, especially under the Commerce Society when, in regards to equity. But what are some of like the personal or systemic issues that you've kind of experienced here at Queens? Yeah. It's something really interesting like that, that I, I only learned like after talking to you that just how much of... Uh how much of like you know the equity clubs here are basically running on volunteer labor and it's it's sort of like i, th- I think a culture that really needs to change because equity clubs are specifically there to like, make the student experience better for everyone involved and to sort of address the needs of marginalized communities that are not being heard otherwise and do you expect like you know just volunteers to uh, put their own like put like hours and hours that such, such as what you're doing of, the, of your own time like into into this work um, just you know uh, without really anything to show for it I think it's it's not really fair on anybody like I and I think the yellow house is like a primary example of like what can happen when you do put funding towards towards these initiatives right and I definitely feel like it's sort of what's holding back a lot of the equity clubs here and it definitely, there definitely needs to be a culture shift on that. I mean, we can't really speak for everybody. Like there's, within the EDI space, like I know there's different unique challenges being faced by people of the indigenous communities, and for example. But I mean, I I personally, um, definitely like, I I personally feel at least within my space, which is specifically uh, grad school, like I feel like it, it is a difficult time uh, for queer people to sort of present our ideas, like in a way, because whenever we, whenever you are presenting any idea, putting forward to somewhere in the department, it's usually, uh, obviously you have to be judged based on your peers' work. And usually the problems that we tend to talk about, uh, the problems that we are concerned with, are usually not shared with like, uh, nor- normally with cis people. And Therefore, it kind of, it kind, it's kind of difficult to really raise some of the issues when, uh, when people instant, when people are not particularly receptive to it. And it, and I don't mean that, that people really mean mean this in, with ill intent. It's just that a lot of these issues are not really are kind of new, and they're new to them at least. Like not something that's typically brought up. And I can give like an example about of this. Um, I was recently working on with some research about how uh, AI-based language technologies are particularly discriminative to people who uh, identify outside the gender binary. And bringing this up to in front of people, usually it's you could kind of, you can kind of tell that people are not ex- people are not expecting to hear this when uh, when you're when you want to present research on on AI technology. And so therefore, I always implicitly feel like there is a resistance to it, but there's, I can't, like, there's also been support. So I can't, I'm not saying like, it's only bad, but definitely there's, there's some problems in like raising up issues like this to a platform. Um, for one, another example would be conferences, right? It's very difficult for queer people to really, uh, really be present at conferences because our work is getting reviewed by usually cishet people. Definitely, there's there are a lot of challenges that we need to tackle on a personal and systemic level, and I suppose, I mean, it's a very complicated question, right? Like, what can we do to really improve things? Like, what are what is your opinion? Like, what 
are some areas of improvement out there. Yeah, I think when it comes to improving the space right now, um, a lot of it has to do with funding, I think, at the end of the day. I've noticed over time that with Q+, with Equip, which is the education project under or under the AMS, and they do a lot of um, events, socials, uh, on queer issues as well, as well as NG queries, I've noticed that over time, engagement rates and also um, the number of people who apply for these positions have decreased over time because honestly, a lot of people are burnt out from doing equity work. I read somewhere on LinkedIn actually that like 80% or like 75 to 80% of um, EDI um, officers or executives feel burnt out. And I think that's because a lot of the pushback and also lack of support and always you know, having to make a business case when you have some sort of initiative that you want to put forward. You have to kind of make your argument palatable to yeah. your um, the people in power who are, you know, cis people. And it's difficult, it's super challenging and experiencing pushback makes you less motivated and then not having that funding um, to, you know, be compensated for your time kind of makes you less motivated to work even harder on the industries that you are working on because you become burnt out, right? A lot of your time is like, uh, allocated towards trying to actually self-care as well. And that's something that actually isn't talked a lot about when it comes to solutions, I think. One particular thing that I've noticed is, um, so on top of just paid positions, the number of queer clubs at Queens has only grown since 2020. I think right now there are 18 clubs or so. And so something that my first year reps, representatives, and I, um, shout out to them, um, they we have actually started working on a new initiative called Queers at Queens, which is a one-stop shop Instagram account where you can find all your queer news and events. Um, so we hopefully be so if people follow that one page, they can get access to all the different initiatives happening at Queens University and Kingston. So hopefully by following that one account, they can get access to all their initiatives uh, and queer events and initiatives um, here in Kingston. So engagement rate increases and people feel like their work is you know paying off because at the end of the day, that's what really matters, I think, is making sure that their efforts are recognized through attendance rates, et cetera. But yeah, I think that's one thing. It's centralizing these movements and initiatives. It's incredibly important since it's so spread out that if you have to follow 18 accounts, then that's extremely difficult, right? Do you want to repeat the Instagram page, Queers uh, at Queens? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's like at Queers, so Q-U-E-E-R-S, at AT and then Queens and um, that's on Instagram and we actually just hit 100 followers like two days ago I think we started like two weeks or one week ago I can't quite remember so obviously that's it's something that people are very interested in and very passionate and hoping to learn more about so very happy to be putting this forward and hopefully growing it to more of a community um, at the end of the day the vision for next year actually is to um, have sort of like weekly event or something through Queers at Queens. So for example, having an event with alcohol, uh, beers with queers, uh, every Thursday would be something super fun for everyone. And, you know, of course, drinking is optional um, and we can make sure to enforce that as well, uh, making sure that it's a safe space for everyone, regardless of whether or not you drink or not. And also ensuring that the space is uh, very accessible to those um, who are disabled and ultimately um, fostering some of the community I think is super important putting on these sorts of events having some sort of consistency so that word gets around and there's some sense of uh, community because there are events that people go to very consistently I, I, I would love to also talk more about um, transparency as well when it comes to doing equity work and hear kind of your thoughts on it because I've realized that in my position as Q, a coacher for Q plus that if you're not communicating what you're doing to everyone, you might not actually be doing enough of the work. And what I mean by that is if you're not telling people that you're doing it, 
and someone else works on that same initiative, you're kind of doubling the effort and you know tiring everyone else, tiring everyone out. Um, and when instead you could be collaborating and pushing forward the same mission, there's always strength in numbers, right? So I'm yeah, curious, and yeah. like in your experience, like have you noticed anything in regards to transparency around equity work? Yeah, um, I mean the first bit of I think transparency needed is that, uh, like I know a lot of people coming in don't really know what equity work is, mm -hmm. and uh, especially like international students, for example, where there isn't really much equity work done. For example, where I did my undergrad, and when you were, I think like it, it'll, it's it would be really beneficial to first of all like know that what specific equity work is, and and as you said, like who is doing what, because like um, it's really really hard to follow. And I, I absolutely agree with you. Like if, I mean, if people don't really know what is being done, what resources they have access to, like do they really have access to those resources? Do they really have access to those events if like you know the information can't get to them and this is always a challenge i think like i do think like if people i mean if people had a better idea of like what was happening and uh, clubs absolutely could like collaborate a lot better um like um instead of instead of like events run by like you know five different queer clubs separately i mean have like have, having people band together band together resources and manpower and kind of sort of uh, sort of like creating these like much bigger events. I think that would really change the space in a way that hasn't been done. Like now sort of all queer events sort of happen in their little respective corners. I mean, I mean that's still fine. I mean, that's the route I think to getting to what you mentioned, you know, like it, I know it doesn't happen in a day and the work you're doing is is sort of like all apart to what's going to lead up to it. But it's definitely, that should be, I think the end goal. And right? that's part of the work that uh, hopefully Queers at Queens can help uh, achieve it's centralizing that 100 percent yeah and also i think you know when it comes to um, other clubs who are outside of the queer space when it comes to things like um, introducing yourself with their pronouns um having an event um and um having uh, you know auto transcription turned on regardless of whether or not someone there needs is hard of hearing so I think it, you have to be very intentional about the things that you implement. And especially for club leaders, that's something that they really need to prioritize. Um, it's making sure that these things are in place. And I can bet you that probably 95% of, or actually maybe 90% um, of the Queen's population don't know what the procedures are when it comes to um, if you've experienced a sexual assault or if you've experienced harassment. It's making sure that all of this yeah. is communicated and that people understand um, the procedures can really help enforce um, a culture that is less fratty, you know, less, um, but that's a poor choice of word, but a culture that is intolerant towards um, misconduct like sexual assault and et cetera. So you have to be yes, very yeah. intentional about the way the policies and the things that you implement and also making sure communicating that. And I think lastly, my last point on top. Do you, before you maybe move on, I just maybe want to interject one thing. Like, do you feel like um, some sort of mandatory training um, that like all students or have to attend, for example, would really help in this regard? I, because I know like you, for example, mentioned like how certain common practices are like introducing yourself with the pronouns, but I feel like those practices don't really don't aren't really universal across all across queens for example i think when in the grad space in computing it's much less so um than i think other spaces i've been in so i feel i do feel like having like you know mandatory training would really help to sort of solve that issue and also also like get people educated about the things you've mentioned like uh, letting people know where they can access like uh, what they can do in, in the event of a sexual assault, like what resources do they have? Yeah, for sure. That is a, a really good question because that's been brought up a lot in the commerce society. And especially what I've noticed with training is that it simply isn't going to work if the people aren't engaged in it. 
And so an, alter an alternative that I suggest is something um, like case-based training. That's very, very much more applicable. And I want to give credits to Mia Wasim for this idea. I saw her implemented um, two years ago in the Commerce Society when I first became a co-chair and I had to go through that case-based training. And essentially what case-based training is, you present a case to a group of people, you allow them to discuss it, and then you come grab back as a group and allow the facilitator to kind of provide a solution to that case. So uh, something that we talked about in that case-based training session was if someone experienced sexual assault at a conference and they approached you, what would you do as co-chair? So those scenarios I think are really important to experience um, and also think about. So you preemptively know what to do when if it ever does arise. And I think that's what is really important about training is that it has to be very applicable. And there's a lot of theory, I think, when it comes to training. And I don't think that works or engages people because it's just a lot of information that's being spat at yeah. them and they kind of have to, you know, memorize it. But with case-based training, you're really um, applying that, thinking of a scenario that that might happen um, to you in a position. So, you know, for students, it might a case might be like you see your friend um, crying in the corner and they tell you that they experienced some sort of sexual assault. What do you do in the situation to all incoming Queen students like or, for example, um, you know, really telling people the importance of introducing themselves with their pronouns and how that fosters a sense of inclusion for people who don't use pronouns like he, him, she, her is also really important. I think the majority of Gen Zers and also, you know, those growing up um, are very much acceptable of um, yeah. being people who are queer. And so it's informing them about why they're doing something and also making it easily applicable with, you know, case-based things. That's, um, that's what I think would be a great solution. That's a fantastic idea. Really so much work mm -hmm. being done in the pedagogical way of, of version, like way of looking at how to get this information to people. And I mean, um, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, training that's just very by the books and very, do I want to say like, uh, tokenistic like you know it probably isn't really going to make a big difference like the training has to be very deliberate and very targeted but what issues it's trying to sort of solve and I, I think that would probably have the biggest impact and again like I guess we also have to come back to the same issue right like um, you, you need I think proper funding for people in doing this sort of training to really be able to like you know invest their time and resources into providing the best training possible. For sure. And on top of burnout and facing a lot of pushback, that's a very challenging mm -hmm. space to be in. And yeah. it definitely feels like your efforts aren't always appreciated. And, you know, when June comes around, if you're a queer club, you're always reached out to yeah. and asked to collaborate or, um, you know, share a queer event that they're putting on. Um, but then for the rest of the year, you're really never talked about or, you know, yeah. um, supported intentionally in any way, unless you reach out first. I think, especially for the AMS and Comsoc and the Engineering Society and also any other societies that manage clubs or overlook clubs, um, it's very important to make sure that they're all supported, um, especially yeah. equity-seeking clubs. And I would love to kind of ask you as well, um, in your experience, um, you know, seeing what uh, clubs like Queers and AI have done and also um, your research as well. I remember you touched on the point of the ethics when it comes to the ethics when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence and some of the challenges yeah. there yeah. as well mm -hmm. that um, kind of showcases the bias that can often come, yeah. to, come to be. Yep. We'd love to hear about that. So I'll try to keep this like as uh, as like you know high level as possible. Like I, this mainly what I'm researching is um, how bias and unfairness sort of creeps into AI uh, technology. Um, so one very famous uh, famous research paper in this space was uh, the paper of Gender Shades. Yeah, the what the authors uh, did in that paper was sort of like showing that. Uh, facial recognition technology by some of the leading providers such as IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, um, how these all are sort of like, they are a lot better at detecting white male faces than 
dark skinned female faces. Like the more progressively you go into darker skin and more progressively you go into um, people who are, um, who at least present uh, as female, you see the performance of these models sort of get worse and worse. And um, it, it, it speaks all, a lot to the, um, I guess the makeup of the tech industry of being white male dominated. And it also speaks to how a, a lot of like really simple ethical issues do not really get spotted in, uh, in computing. Um, and a lot of this is challenging because now that people are working in AI, they, we have to train AI with something and the training has to come from data from the real world. And um, more often than not, data from the real world will have represent some sort of bias against people. One example of that, like I mentioned how language technologies um, have bias against non-binary people. It's because um, language technologies are trained on language in the internet. And as it happens, the internet is pretty transphobic. So it's going to inherently learn a lot of very transphobic uh, language. So it's my research sort of is in this space and trying to trying to sort of dissect why these problems happen, trying to educate people on on like how to prevent issues like this and just uh, also dissecting like technology out there and figuring out what other problems lay there like undiscovered. That's super amazing. And the reason I, I wanted you to share that is because I, I remember like in our conversation before this podcast, you mentioned this point and it made me think about how at Queens as well, um, you see a lot of the issues here are kind of similar to um, what you're researching on. It's the fact that a lot of the existing infrastructure, the existing data, the existing systems in place right now aren't equipped to support trans folks, non-binary folks, um, gender queer folks, queer folks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone who doesn't identify as this head. And so you have to be um, on top of what's kind of in place, like even more intentional about what you're doing and putting in place and making sure that you're providing sufficient support for those people who are doing that. Um, and this kind of makes me think about the fact that you have to be very radical, mm -hmm. I think, when you are in the equity space. And that's something that I, I discussed in my diversity and inclusion class with Kate Robotham, who I love. I don't know if I pronounced her last name right, but Kate is someone who is so amazing and arguably one of the best professors, I would say, yeah, the best professor I've had at Queens with just the way she brings intersectionality into the class, you know, given that it's a diversity and inclusion course has just been so amazing to experience because I feel like I can actually share my personal experiences and stories in the class. And that's been a game changer uh, to how I feel in the commerce program. <clears throat> and so my point being is that there really needs to be a lot more uh, support in this area, but as well, focusing on supporting these uh, equity work folks. Yeah, um, that's, that's really amazing. And, and I, I, I can totally relate to like how much having somebody like really good, a uh, really good professor really just do what they do best within that space, like how much it can really change and, and influence in a way, you know, like it's, it's sort of like inspiring. And for me, but especially when I see like, a, a, so for example, a, a queer professor really being in the space. And as you said, like, you absolutely have to be radical, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, just the, I suppose the notion of like challenging the status quo is radical enough mm -hmm. uh, to like, you know, people who probably don't want to, want that massive change to happen. So like, it, there isn't really much of a choice. I think like, you know, people in the EDI space really have. Um, and I think like the best course of an action is to sort of like not, not to try to like, you know, go half and half and meet people in the middle. I think you should really lean into it and be as radical as possible. And and seeing somebody do that, like to me, that's inspiring when I see a professor really, or like, you know, somebody existing and I kind of feel like that, you know what, I, I, I can be there too one day. Definitely. Having a great professor makes such a big difference because I think when I look at accommodations, so let's say you experience an extenuating circumstance. I'm not sure if you've had to use this service before, but um, you have to provide a lot of documentation. And a lot yeah. of the time that involves kind of trauma dumping on a counselor 
or a therapist to make sure that you can get all this, you know, the documentation uh, accommodations that you need. And I think I'd love to share something personal here. So in second year, I didn't do so well in my winter term because of some mental challenges. I was at home. I was dealing with a lot of stress, stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, so of depression here and there. Um, and so it really was really hard. And so ultimately, I had to actually go um, in front of the um, academic considerations board or some sort. Um, so it was a, a panel of, of professors who kind of evaluate whether or not you stay in the commerce program. And because I actually had done so poor that year, um, which I really didn't, um, I got I failed two courses and I the the rest of the three other courses I got A's in. So it was a very striking difference between um how I kind of did in, mm-hmm. in those courses. But um, you know, ultimately because the rule in commerce is that if you fail two courses, you have to uh, go in front of the uh, commerce academic board and I had to kind of regurgitate my trauma and what I what I had to go through um, so that I could stay in the commerce program and ultimately what happened was I dropped the two courses and so if I had just done that in the first place I would have never had to um, go in front of this board and regurgitate my trauma and so I think that just kind of showcases the 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 burden that is placed onto students when it comes to something as simple as accommodations and um, making sure that your learning is uh, supported. And that definitely was a bit of a trauma, traumatic experience for me. But I'm not sure if you have any, um, you know, experience with this or you've heard of your friends' experiences with this. We'd love to hear that. I can definitely relate. Like, I had a very similar experience in my undergrad mm-hmm. where I was getting straight A's for several semesters. And then suddenly I failed my two courses in in one semester it was like just this huge stark difference because i was going through like a ton of mental health problems and i mean it's um uh, well that was a different place in queens uh but like i mean i feel like mental health problems are kind of go hand in hand with being a queer person like it's so common yeah in in queer queer people Mm -hmm. that it makes complete sense like you know your whole life is the sort of battling um battling like society in a way and battling sort of what you uh what has been what you've been told your entire life and I mean I've dealt with a ton of depression and anxiety um because of that and I just feel like if having like a a, somebody queer to really talk to about this stuff like when seeking accommodation for example would really help so much because like it's really a problem I think every queer person can really relate to when I came here, I broke my ankle like within a month of arriving into Canada. Oh, no. And, you know, on, yeah, like on top of like everything else that was going on, like all the other sort of challenges, I, I, I faced like it was a miserable time. It was such a miserable time. And there was one particular accommodation that I got from some of my professors was like just the ability to sit at home and do some of my coursework. But also I was TAing uh, as part of my courses and um, I, I, my professor was, is also a very, is also queer and very inclusive. And basically like they made sure that, you know, like in the initial recovery, there were people who were supporting me, who were kind of, kind of like, and there for the, for the classes I missed, there were people who are like covering for me. Like, it's so incredible to have, like when you're going through something traumatic to have support from people that understand and I think for a university to really create a space for that is really really important and not just to create a, a space that's only built to like pressurize uh, people you know 100% I totally agree with that and you know having those people in your life makes a world of a difference and I guess one of the last things that I would love to for us to talk more about is um, some of the issues regarding race here at Queens, I think, or racism, to be more precise. Um, I think something that I personally was researching a lot when I first chose Queens was the issues surrounding, um, you know, experiencing racism. And I remember I, and microaggressions as well, you know, of course, with Stolen by Smith coming up. But I definitely recall it, like, you know, in my first year, when I was in my dorm, I think I shared this story with you before, but... I was in the common room washing my uh, water bottle and someone came up to me 
uh, started a conversation, and at the end, they said something along the lines of, like, wow, your English is so good. I thought you were an international student. And I think that was definitely, like, a somewhat triggering experience for me because someone, you know, judged me based just based on my experience. And I have to say, I have definitely also been um, someone who, you know, despite being Asian, uh, a person of color, I've um, kind of also had that uh, mindset unconsciously where um, I thought someone, I stereotyped someone, that's something I have to admit and something I've been actively addressing. But yeah, I think that's something that a lot of uh, people of color research before coming to Queens, um, you know, going on Reddit, seeing all the posts about um, you know, how is racism like at Queens? Am I going to find a sense of belonging? I think that is somewhere that um, I think everything we talked about today would essentially address. It's that people don't have to do this research about the fact that whether or not they feel uh, or will feel a sense of belonging here at Queens. And, you know, I think definitely the um, most people are able to, but for those who aren't, it's important to support them as well. It's sort of a reality here that you know microaggressions mm. are a thing that like people of color here at at in Canada have to deal with in at Queens they have to deal with and I mean I'm happy to say that certain spaces in Queens have been really good about this but then I've also had like a lot of pretty um, let's say experiences. Yeah, I think um, I think ultimately at the end of the day, you know, we're all people. We make mistakes and. Yeah. I definitely have noticed a lot of, you know, criticism on, you know, social media whenever something happens, um, which I think um, for us to really move forward with a lot of the things that we hope to accomplish, there kind of needs to be a bit more empathy, I think, when it comes to, you know, understanding that these people make these mistakes uh, and helping them fix that. Um, But also not... Not everything is like malicious, you know, I mean, it's, it's... we we obviously understand that and a lot of people are just uninformed and the solution mm-hmm. to people being uninformed is like the things that you've been mentioning this entire time like getting people informed getting people educated on, on these things is really what's i think important right totally and to kind of end it off i guess i feel pretty optimistic when it comes to queens i think a lot of the people who are here and the incoming classes are very diverse and I think they're really the people who are going to change um, the space. So I feel very optimistic. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are, I, I mean, for almost all the negatives that I've said, I've like there's, all, at least at Queens, there has been so many positives that I truly am very optimistic at like how I, I suppose the university experience will be for queer people like one to two years from now. You know, I think like, People are going to experience the fruits of your labor and like other equity uh, groups in Queens. And yeah, I definitely think the future is bright and colorful and rainbow. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shift Podcast. If you have stories that you'd like to share on the Shift podcast about your experience at Queens or have questions or comments in general, email studentexperiencessurvey at queensu.ca. Join us next week for another episode of the Shift podcast.